Thank you. The uh, just a few things. This was an interesting week. Uh, what day was it? Tuesday, I think. We I were out and got a call that the uh, there was water in the sanctuary. So that was fun. It's like uh, we never get this kind of cold. And uh, there was a pipe broken back here and water all in the corner here. When I uh, got here, I'm like, well, that's not good. <laughs> it was uh, standing water, and uh, we put the word out. And a bunch of people showed up with shop vacs and help. And then Stanley Steamer came, and they were big help, too, and everything. And we got the repair made, so it was a little disruption. But uh, also this week, Cody took a group of uh, a small group of students to the Move Conference in uh, Valdosta at Wild Adventures, and uh, they had a good uh, good experience. Apart from Cody had the crud, <laughs> but uh, some some good things happened. I just like for you to know you don't always know what's going on, you know, in regard to things like that. But um, you know, there was an investment that was happening. And uh, some uh, meaningful things happen in the lives of of uh, the students that went. And also, uh, uh, breaking news, Anna has agreed to teach the children's part of Sunday school, the small group. So probably what we'll try to do as we discuss it is rotate the group of people who have said they would help in to um, help, help her. She'll kind of be our standing teacher for the children's group, and then uh, we'll help other have others involved in helping. So we still need someone that would say, I'll be the team leader for children's ministry because we want to do some things like uh, Vacation Bible School as we go forward and keep doing events. And so just be conscious of that. And uh, if you're, you know, just pray as God leads you. If it's a, a way that he might lead you to serve, we would appreciate that very much. And uh, we'll support you and help you any way we can. All right, so turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 as we return to uh, taking a look verse by verse at this uh, this epistle in the New Testament. Hebrews 5, we're going to begin there with verse number 4, or verse number 1. I know you're probably like me, we're like, where were we now since we took like five weeks for Advent to uh, talk about the arrival of Jesus, but... Uh, we're going to get back in here to Hebrews and continue. We were talking about Jesus is better. That's really the theme of Hebrews is that uh, Jesus is incomparable. And so the writer in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men, for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God, 
as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Father, thank you for the scripture. We pray that you'll just help us to be attentive and alert, open our understanding and our ears, and we pray that your spirit will work in a way that uh, transforms us and helps us as we follow after Jesus, and we pray this in his name, amen. Well, it's so much fun being a grandparent. I know you hear people talk about it, you never really appreciate it in, until you get to be a grandparent, but uh, just to watch my son and his wife be parents to be good parents to love that little baby and of course we showed up there last year when the baby was born and you get to hold that little infant and give him a bottle and then but now later on he's holding the bottle by himself you know it's just kind of neat to watch how these things progress and now every day we get a picture almost every day from my son of our little grandbaby, Porter Bird Brass, will sitting up in a high chair, and in front of him, they just give him table food now. It's amazing. It's like just skip almost right over the the uh, the little jar of baby stuff. He gets like some of the same things that they are eating, and they'll send us these pictures, and he's eating it with his little hands, and it's a blessing. But when we, we watch it, you kind of see what the author meant when he said here that there's a progress that occurs, right, with humans, is that you don't continue to drink milk forever. If you continue to drink milk forever, something has gone wrong in your spiritual progress, just like it's gone wrong if a baby never develops the capacity to eat solid food. And think about all the delightful things that a human misses if they only uh, ever drink milk for the rest of their life. I mean, I went to a restaurant yesterday and had uh, French toast and bacon. Just think about it. If all you ever drink is milk the rest of your life, you never move on to a lot of delightful things. And the writer says here, you should, as a spiritual person, move from milk to solid food. And he gives us this, uh, he introduces to them a kind of obscure idea that we'll talk about in another week too about a person called Melchizedek. And he says, I would really like to unpack a lot of truth to you about Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek, but I can't because you have become dull of hearing. He said, you ought to be teaching people by now, but instead I have to revisit for you the rudimentary things of faith. I have to go back to basic principles because you haven't moved off of milk. And that's the challenge that he gives to them in this passage is that, and to us, right, that we should be moving beyond milk to solid food and that we should be able to disciple other people. We should be teachers. You know, not everybody is skilled to 
teach. This congregation, God has blessed with people that can stand up in front of a group and do a very good job facilitating. You know, we've had, when we have men's stuff, I've heard Scott do an incredible job. I've heard Jonathan and Varney and others do an incredible job. Cody can teach. You know, there are people that God has given to this congregation who can teach, but everybody ought to be able to take their faith, the uh, truths that they believe about Christ, and explain it to someone else. He says the fact that you haven't moved to that ability shows that there's something irregular in your development. And so when we look at this passage today, that's what we see is this challenge to us that there's something in maturity that maybe is in front of us that when he described what it meant for them to be dull of hearing, when you delve into it, it means sloppy. In their discipleship, they were sloppy, sluggish, lazy, dull. Those are the words. Sloppy, lazy, sluggish. I feel that way sometimes myself. But he says, this is kind of what we're at a stopping point now. Can't go on with you until this changes. Until there's a difference in you. And so, we look at this idea here. The first... uh, Part of the passage that we see is uh, imperfection in the old order. He's he's uh, showing us that when Jesus came, he 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 superseded an existing uh, reality in their way of worship in their priesthood. He says every priest, every high priest, taken from among men, is appointed for men and things pertaining to God. So he's just telling us what a priest does, what was the high priest and how what he did for people. And so he's going to compare, first of all, we know when we read the Bible, the, to be a priest you had to belong to the tribe of Levi. There was a Levitical priesthood. They, they had to be a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron. They had to be a Levite to be able to be... a a priest and then a high priest and so he's making this distinction and helping us to think about how spiritual life functions and and then he's going to show us important realities about Jesus but he says a priest is appointed for men so when a priest was given it was for people that that person God had given in a unique role in things pertaining to God so his work was all about God and how to help people grasp realities that God had revealed about himself. To offer gifts of thanks. So an aspect of what the high priest did was to help people to be mindful that God had blessed them. So a part of what they offered was about giving thanks. But then the second part of it was to make sacrifices for sin. So it was about helping them to be, have a worshiping life of thanksgiving but also to help them be mindful of the fact that their sin always interrupted their fellowship with God. And it had to be contended with and dealt with. That sin is a reality for humans. That we think about what's wrong with the world. You remember, you probably have heard people say G.K. Chesterton uh, was asked that question. He was a writer from another age. Dear, uh, the question was put out for a lot of famous uh, people to respond to. What's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton said, uh, Dear sirs, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. And every honest human says, You know what's wrong with the world? Me. I'm what's wrong with the world. 
because I belong to a fallen race of people. And so when he wrote about the idea that sin uh, had to be contended with, the priest dealt with that as a part of his office. People needed a, re- a representative, do need representatives uh, in God's order to administer and regulate religious life according to his self-revelation. It's why you hire a pastor. It's because you have somebody, hopefully, that is among you who thinks about these things more than others or he thinks about the importance of connecting people to God. And sometimes people will say, well, I don't care for organized religion, but like other people have said, well, I like it better than disorganized religion. You know, We need a pattern. We need ways that are helpful for us as we try to worship God. We need things to be predictable. You know, I know there are some places where everything's unpredictable, but we need things to be predictable sometimes. We need seasons that point us to God and remind us about God. What are we going to do in a month or so? We're going to recognize the fact in an intense, deliberate way that Jesus is risen from the grave. We're going to have Easter services. And so we, we just commit to patterns. I have friends who's... Uh, Ministry is in liturgical churches so that they they really are deliberate. I mean, it's, they have a prayer book and a pattern and every day some things that look always the same for them. And But we need that. We need a predictable way of thinking about God, responding to God. And so a priest's job was to organize and pay attention to God's revealed order and to communicate with people and to help them to think about their need for uh, God and for their, the problem of their sin to be dealt with. But all of these priests did it imperfectly. That's what the point is in this passage. There wasn't a single priest who also wasn't lumped together with the need of the people. He had the same need that they had. He was also a sinner. He was also a person who had been affected by the fall And they were in the same boat as the people that they served. And that's still true. If we transfer this to pastors and elders and spiritual leaders, we're all imperfect and we need the same Savior that we proclaim to others. I need the same Savior that I proclaim to other people. So if you're under the impression that pastors fell out of heaven like perfect and without flaws sorry to you know change your mind about that but it's nobody is everybody is in the same boat everybody has the same need and the people in the priests were the priest it says in this passage the high priest could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward people that's the way it puts it in the new living translation because he was also ignorant and wayward he was in the same boat as they were in he had the same needs that they had eugene peterson said the ego is the great foe of ministers and he calls the quest for significance through vocational ministry luciferian hubris is the way he puts in other words a person that's like a call to be a pastor, which we, you know, I was a long, long ago, recognized that other people's recognized the same thing and affirmed it in our life in a formal way, launched us out into vocational ministry. But 
it is true that for people in ministry, sometimes your life can get so wrapped up in the success or failure or the, the sense of health or not health in a local church that it becomes unhealthy for you as a, as a pastor. And he says that, you remember what Lucifer came to Eve with and what he said to her? He says, you can be like God. That's what the temptation was. You can be all-powerful in your realm. And so the temptation often for people like the high priest was to understand himself incorrectly and to assign to himself uh, some heroic status. When he's not a hero, his job is just to point people to the hero, to point people to God. And so in Jesus' day, the high priest had become not even what it says in this passage. He, he was a political appointee who had lost sight of the place of redemption as the goal of religion. So you think about, you remember Caiaphas in the Gospels? When uh, we think about it, Caiaphas was the high priest at that time. He was also someone who was involved in the plot to have Jesus crucified. Think about that. The high priest, the person who was most responsible for helping the people to worship God, became involved in a plot to crucify Jesus of Nazareth. He had lost sight of the fact that his responsibility was to be, for them, uh, an anchoring reality, helping people, pointing them to the grace of God and and eventually the Messiah. So there was imperfection in that order. This priest... Was He did what he was supposed to do, but he was never going to be completely adequate for what people needed as an intermediary, someone who stood between God and others. He was just like them, uh, marred and flawed by sin's imperfection in, in himself. So, But the second part of this passage is that perfection... We, we see it in Jesus the Messiah. Where was perfection? Well, if it wasn't in the Levitical priesthood, which is what the writer proposes, he says there was something not, not perfect in it, but something perfect came, someone perfect came. And that perfect someone is Jesus. In him we find this perfection. And the scripture says about Jesus that um, he's... God says in verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, God who said to him, You are my son, today I've begotten you. So we've traveled that ground already, but when the Bible talks about him being begotten, we're just talking about the incarnation again. We're talking about the eternal one becoming flesh. So when he says, You're my son, he became the son of God, in, uh, but he had always eternally existed as God. But he became the, this human living among people as our perfect uh, representative and our perfect sacrifice. But the writer says he wasn't ambitious to become high priest. He was, in his essence, high priest. It's, uh, you aren't ambitious for something embedded into your personality and identity. He didn't have to contend to be that. There was nothing that would prevent Jesus from becoming the great high priest. It was who, who he was. and so. But he says there's a different order here that we're going to talk about. Not the order of Levi, 
not the descendants of Aaron, but he says now we're talking about uh, Melchizedek, who, by the way, you don't know that much about. But what we'll see as we go through this, and I'm, I'm saying he was saying that to them, that you don't know that much about Melchizedek, but he, this, there's an order that's hidden in Scripture that we're going to talk about. But in chapter 6, he goes on correcting, rebuking the writer in Hebrews. And he'll get to chapter 7 and he'll say, okay, now back to Melchizedek. We're going to talk about uh, this priesthood that's embedded in Scripture. That The reason you need this explanation is because Jesus is of the tribe of what? Judah, right? Who did Jesus descend from? The tribe of Judah. Line of the tribe of Judah. So if he was of the tribe of Judah, the priest didn't come from the tribe of Judah. He came from the tribe of Levi. And so the writer says, you, we have to explain something here. How do we get Jesus as high priest if he's not a Levite? He says he comes from the, this priesthood, this order of Melchizedek. It's, it's uh, God is doing a new thing, which is what the Scripture says a lot, right? He's doing a new thing. The new birth and the, and the new, new covenant. And so Jesus, he says, we got to take a detour here away from what you're accustomed to and give you something that appears in Scripture that maybe you're not as familiar with. So Jesus is... Uh, and he uses the scripture in the Old Testament to affirm Jesus' credentials to be Messiah, his bona fides. He's Messiah, and he's high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's referring to Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, where the Messiah is called a priest forever according to this order of Melchizedek. The priest would not need a successor. All these other priests died. When they died, someone else became high priest in his place. He, was, he had, had to have a successor. Jesus doesn't need a successor. That's why he's a high priest forever according to the Melchi- uh, order of Melchizedek. He won't ever have a successor. He will be the last priest in that line. And Melchizedek, who the, you find in Genesis, if you remember... Abraham meets him, and he's going to, like I said, this comes back to uh, up again in chapter 7, but Abraham meets uh, Melchizedek after he's been out to defeat uh, other kings at war, and this priest just comes, and uh, Abraham encounters him and, and makes a, uh, gives a tithe of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. And, and as a priest, he appears... Basically, out of nowhere, the scripture is going to say he has no genealogy. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know where he came from. He just shows up. And in that way, he is what the Bible calls a type. He's a type of Jesus. So, the, and that's a Bible word. You find it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is another place where you hear the Bible talk about a type. A type is someone who has foreshadowing quality. So Melchizedek appears and foreshadows Christ. When he shows up, he's saying, the Bible is saying to us, Jesus will have these qualities. No genealogy. He gets, again, when we get to chapter 7, he's going to 
address that. No genealogy, no beginning, no end. We don't know where he came from. And that's what God is like, right? People are trying to explain the world in all the ways they can think of, leaving God out, but the Bible says you can't explain the world without God. He was there first. No beginning or end. He is eternal. And so it's helping us think about what Messiah is like. Jesus is, he comes in this order. So the word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. Telling us about who Jesus is, what he's like. He is the king and he is the one who, through whom righteousness comes. There's an aside that, like I say, we'll get back to. But this, from here until the end of chapter 6, he's going to talk about the problem of being dull of hearing. He's going to talk about the problem of not being receptive, not going on past milk into the, the substance of what the gospel is and who Christ was. But it, it, this is such an interesting passage. I love, this is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible about Jesus. It says, in the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh. Who in the days of his flesh, verse uh, 7. When he had, listen to what it says. Because it's not talking about Melchizedek. Now it's talking about Jesus. It says, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. To him was, who was able to save him from death. And was heard because of his godly fear. And then it goes on and says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is incredibly fascinating portion of scripture. And of course it's talking about, in part, where Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. We remember that Jesus went with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and they while they were there together, remember what they kept doing? Same thing we might have done in their place. They kept falling asleep. Jesus tells them, stay awake and watch with me and pray. But they, keep, they continue to fall asleep. But Jesus is in anguish. And sometimes people want Jesus to be like Mr. Spock in Star Trek, right? You remember Mr. Spock, emotionless and, you know... There's nothing, he never changed his, you know, temperament at all. But that's not what we see in Jesus. I I was talking to a couple of friends this week about this passage in Instant Messages. And and, uh, one friend recommended to me a book by, it's really an article because it's online, by B.B. Warfield that talks about the, uh, the emotional life of Jesus. Jesus had emotions in the Bible. He's not Mr. Spock. He had emotions. He, he was grieved at times. He was sad at times. He goes to see his uh, friends uh, from Bethany, Mary, and Martha, and Lazarus, and he cries at the, he cries at the um, grave of a friend. He had emotions. And here the Bible says that one of the emotions that he experienced, it's hard for us to really explain what he felt. But when Jesus was looking to Calvary where he would be crucified, he, the Bible says... He was in anguish and he was distressed. And he prayed, if this cup can be taken away from me. Father, remove this cup from me if it can be taken away. That's just such a staggering thought. That his mission, his life was involved in coming to rescue us. But while he was there in the garden and on the 
eve, evening leading up to his crucifixion, he was praying, and the Bible says he was distressed. And uh, one person, because how do you describe this? Is it anxiety? People say, don't call it anxiety. Because it would you know, appear to be some sort of weakness in, in Jesus. B.B. Uh, Warfield described it as the anguish of reluctance. The anguish of reluctance. But the Bible says he was distressed and despondent. And the scripture says here he had vehement cries and tears. You remember that the Bible says while he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, his, uh, it was as if he, you know, were sweating drops of blood. We think about the distress, the turmoil that was inside of him. I don't know how to describe it. I just know that it represented in Jesus authentic emotions that were related to the punishment that was in front of him because of sin. And that's what the Bible here, when it talks about Jesus as priest, shows us. The other fascinating part of this to me is that it says he was heard. Because of his uh, obedience and his godly fear, his reverence for his father, he was heard but not delivered. Right? He was heard, God heard his prayer, but he wasn't delivered out of what was in front of him, the cross. The cross still occurred. And, and to me, this is in, instruct, instructive. It's helpful. We think sometimes because our prayers weren't answered according to our liking, they weren't answered. But Jesus' prayers weren't answered according to his praying, but the Bible says what? He was heard. So I think sometimes we should say, am I praying like Jesus? If I'm praying like Jesus, I'm praying, Father, not my will, but yours to be done. If I'm praying like Jesus, it may be that the thing that I asked for did not happen, but God in his wisdom gave me what was needed. So when we look at Jesus in, in, as high priest here, as this is to me is just mind-blowingly interesting. The fact that he prayed to be delivered, and he was heard but not delivered. And he accepted the cup of wrath. That's the cup he's referring to. When he says, if, the, if possible, take this cup away from me. He's talking about the cup of wrath. The fact that wrath had to come because of sin. Your sin, my sin. And Jesus says, I'd rather not do this, but your will be done. And, and he accepts the will of God, and he drinks the cup of wrath, and that bitter cup is death, is crucifixion, is, is the punishment that was justly supposed to be poured out on us, but instead was poured out on him. Now look at what else the Scripture says here. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Yeah, I, I don't know. When I read this, Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. There was something that God could only know exper experimentally one way. And that was to become human. God never knew what it was like to, to suffer in that way. 
until he became a man, until God entered into our experience and he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Michael Catt is a pastor, retired now, who recently wrote a book, I think basically on his own experience with cancer. But he says there's no room in Americanized Christianity for books on pain, disease, suffering, famine, tears, trials, and tribulation. So those aren't the kind of books we want to read or things that we want to hear about. But the the reality is you're in for your fair share of suffering. I'm in for my own fair share of suffering. Sometimes it may just be the anguish that goes along with uh, uh, problems that don't have immediate answers. Anybody dealing with any problems that don't have immediate answers? Of course. That's what it's like to be a human being. We're going to uh, suffer. And the Bible says we, what Jesus did was that he learned that he experienced the blessing of God through his suffering, or I don't know, it gets difficult to even express. He was God, but God was learning through his own willingness to pass through his passion. That's what it's called, the passion, the suffering. All that it was, not just physical, but everything that it was. God's will was accomplished in what felt like abandonment, betrayal, and darkness. We, that's not how we think at all, but in Jesus what we learn is that God's will was accomplished in what felt like abandonment, betrayal, and darkness. When Jesus hung on the cross, what did he experience? What does it say? In the ninth hour, I think it says that the, the lights went out, the world was pitch black. We just want everything to be hunky-dory. But that's not how the Bible says we really pass through to maturity. It says he was perfected through suffering. Wait, wasn't he perfect already? Yes, he was perfect already. But when Jesus relented, became available to be a sacrifice... Perfected means God's purpose was worked out in exactly the way he intended. Maturity. The goal was accomplished because Jesus became willing to to suffer. So I'm preaching to me too. I don't like suffering. I don't like difficulty. I don't like open-ended stuff in my life. I like for it to be resolved and neat. Wish it was that way all the time. It seldom is. And, and so sometimes... If we want to learn through the life of Jesus, and of course we know the most obvious lesson here is that God's providing for us a way forward to have our sins forgiven and to be cleansed and to become a child of his through the cross, but also we'll probably have to experience what feels like abandonment sometimes. We'll have to experience what is, you know, a veil of darkness and what feels like betrayal. So we see that in Jesus, this high priest, these were the things that occurred in providing for us a perfect high priest. But the third part of this passage is that the the impediments in our progress that he's going to come to. He says, 
in, in the scripture here. I'm ta- talking to them about the Messiah, talking about this, uh, this um, one Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. And, and so there's that in verse 11, this transition that he's going to, like I say, when we come back next week, we'll look at chapter 6. And boy, when I first became a follower of Christ, the, I remember talking to my pastor about Hebrews chapter 6. I was confounded you know, about what, what all it meant. And, and so it's, you know, we'll see, we'll pick up in that. But you, you picked up, he says to them, the, a bad habit of not listening. You have become too lazy to understand, one translation puts it. Lazy, he calls them. That's not nice, calling people lazy. You become too lazy to understand. Receiving biblical truth requires an engaged heart. That's what the Bible is showing us. We have to have an engaged heart to receive biblical truth. Nominal devotion results in weak faith because faith comes by hearing the word of God, the scripture says. So if we're, if we're not engaged and the, and the word of God's not making its way into us and we're not connecting in that way, of course we're going to have a weak faith. So he's calling them out, calling us out. And we think about laziness. You may be a hard-working person in your vocational life. And that's not what it's talking about when it talks about laziness. It's not saying that you, you don't work hard. It's saying your energy is too seldom applied to the strengthening of, of, your, the strengthening of your relationship with God, the strengthening of my relationship with God. That's different than being a hard worker because you can work really hard but not be working on your uh, connection, your relationship with God. So he says that's what laziness meant for them, for us. Rather than being capable of passing along the faith to others, these believers needed to be reminded of the basic uh, uh, parts of faith. It was as if they, you know, uh, the same thing is true in education, is that it basically is a building year after year. They teach you in school the alphabet. You remember when you were a kid and they taught you to write the alphabet? in school, but then they expect you to come back and read later on. Dick and Jane, when I was a kid, man, I'm old. Those little grammar books that you had and you read these, they taught everybody the same stories as a way of teaching you to read. And then they teach you numbers, whole numbers and fractions and then addition and subtraction and multiplication and if you're really smart, trigonometry and stuff like that. Or maybe not. It depends. But we know that education is building on things. And the, and the Bible saying and we start off as novices. Not knowing an awful lot, but that's not what is supposed to be true. And it's not even just learning things. You know, if it was just learning things, it would be awesome because... A lot of us can memorize things. That's not what it means to be a mature follower of Christ. It is to take biblical truth and work it into our everyday stuff. So that like what's coming out of us looks like Jesus more and more all the time. So it would be awesome if we could just 
you know, commit a lot of stuff to memory, and that turned into character. But that's not how, that's not real. What's real is we are put into situations that very often are testing and trying us, and what happens in, in that life stuff is what gives evidence to where our faith really is, where it's progressed or where we're, we become lazy. And we're not taking the lessons and working them out. So they were, he says, unaccomplished and incompetent. They had not sharpened their powers of perception. Guess what? They were vulnerable to error. When we don't sharpen our powers of perception, we become vulnerable to error. I've said before, I read this book where the guy said, cults are the unpaid bills of the church. How do people end up in biblical systems that don't teach the right things about Jesus and heaven and hell and and his personality, that he's God, and they teach people that you have to work? And How do people end up in systems like that? That writer says the cults are the unpaid bills of the church. People that didn't get or didn't uh, commit to be discipled are subject to error. They're easily swayed into wrong ideas about what it means to know God. Being familiar with our faith, we are likely to be useful to God's work in the kingdom and will not putter our away our earthly life to no eternal good. He says this is uh, where we have to have an engaged heart. When we commit ourselves fully to the work of discipleship, there's a trickle-down effect to others. People around us are helped through us, which is God's purpose. And uh, he says that uh, the things you heard from me among many witnesses, these commit to faithful people that they in turn might teach others. So the, God wants people to catch Christianity from us like it's a virus we have. <laughs> They're catching it from us. So the things that you heard, you commit to others so that they in turn might teach others. And when God doesn't have our attention, he'll disturb what does. That's what Benjamin Watson says. We're not paying attention. That's what the writer says. You're not paying attention. When God doesn't have your attention, he'll disturb what does. We might not like that idea, but since we need God most and foremost, it would be a blessed disturbance, wouldn't it? If whatever has got your attention that's not God, if God disturbed it, it would be a blessed disturbance. We can see in the life of Jesus what maturity in God's purpose is most likely, that it's most likely to follow a path of suffering. Since it's probable that you'll suffer, why, not, why let it be wasted? Uh, this is a question I'm asking myself. Instead of experiencing disruption or disorientation as upheaval or uh, and upheaval, what if we learn to lean into God at those times? I, I just noticed that like life is more irregular than regular. The, I, you know, there are times where we might find that there's this peaceful interlude. That's awesome. But often it's not that way. Is God not saying anything in those times? I mean, no, clearly he is saying a lot to us in those times. And those are the times where I've heard other people say, you know, like when you squeeze a lemon, what comes out of it? They'll say lemon juice, 
pulp seeds. No, whatever's in there, that's what comes out. Right? When you're squeezed, whatever's in there is what's going to come out. Whatever's in me is what's going to come out when I'm squeezed. And sometimes God is just showing us, hey, that's what's in there. What are you going to do about it? And we need wisdom, and that's acting properly and repeatedly on what we know from God's Word. So this is, you know, we've gotten to a place in Hebrews where there are a lot of these places. Some of them are warnings. Some of them are rebukes where he says, you're not attentive. The best thing for you to do is learn how to be attentive because otherwise you're not going to prosper in the way that God intends for you to. We're going to have a time of commitment in a moment. It may be that there's a way that uh, you need to respond as we have this time. I'll be happy to pray with you. Or if uh, there's a need that you have to receive Christ. I don't want to assume everybody here has received God's offer of forgiveness and salvation through Christ. It may be that that's your need, and I will be happy to help you with that. Or others of our elders would be happy to come up and pray with you and help you. And uh, as we sing, as we stand together, this is a, a time of commitment, opportunity to respond. God, we're grateful for the scripture and how it uh, sometimes confronts us uh, at times in our path, our journey, and uh, shows us ways that maybe our life is not aligned with your will. And I pray for any of us today that as we've listened, we've just noticed that we've become a little uh, lazy and inattentive. And maybe we need to adjust our lives back to you in obedience and passion and to give you a first place in our life as you deserve. I just pray whatever needs we have that we'll be obedient to you now in Christ's name. Amen.